0: Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter two. Ecclesiastes chapter two. It's been a few weeks since we've been back in Ecclesiastes. Let me just remind you of what's been going on. Solomon is is beginning to unfold a philosophy of life. He's unfolding a theology of living. He's looking at life from the most realistic perspective that one can do. He is a realist, he is not um, deterred by how, how, uh, how he might propose that you would deal with his truth. In other words, he's not what we see happening every day. We're in the middle of a presidential campaign And I was just listening to some pundits this afternoon who were going back and forth, arguing on the fact of whether it's right or wrong or in your best interest or in your worst interest to be unguarded, to just say what's on your mind. And the argument was quite intriguing. It was uh, uh, one side was saying, well, it's good to just unfold your heart, let everybody know what you think. That way uh, you get what you see and you see what you get. And the other side was saying, no, that's not how a president is supposed to act. He's supposed to be temperate, and he's supposed to keep cards close to his chest so you don't see exactly what he's thinking. Well, whether you think about the politics of one side or the other, Solomon doesn't really care. What he does is he deals with our lives, the shortness of them, the reality of our deaths, without any spin, without any anesthetic, He's just finished an experiment in chapter two and this experiment is to try all the pleasures of life and in the first 11 verses, he tries all of these experiments, six pleasures he tries and all of them come up empty in terms of lasting satisfaction. So after that, he turns his attention to really the end of our days. Let me read verses 12 and following just to set it in our minds. Solomon says, so I turned, this is after his experiment with pleasure, I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom exceeds folly as light excels, excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how will the wise man and the fool alike die? So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun, which was grievous to me because everything was futility and striving after the wind. I hope verse 17 is not your life verse. Verse 18 says, Thus I hated all the fruit of the labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over the fruit of my labor For which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun, this too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? There's a better life verse. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This, too, is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, before you say, what in the world is this about, let me remind you that this book was written to students. At the end of his book, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. This was intended for junior hires and senior hires to hear and to understand and to apply. This is, sounds like almost a competing philosophies that are going on, but they're not. And I think as we unpack it together, you'll see that Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived up to this point, is neither a pessimist nor an optimist. He is a realist. And this book called Ecclesiastes, this sermon called Ecclesiastes, is his call to think through the issues of life and death And what makes it so insightful is that Solomon had such wisdom on life and death. The richest man to have ever lived up to this point. The most powerful man. He had unhindered power to do anything he wanted. Unlimited resources to experience anything he wanted. He's someone we really should listen to. It's also, the whole message of the book is him saying to these young people, these youth who he's speaking to, listen, been there Done that, use my pain and learn from it or you'll experience your own. Back in verses 10 and 11, his conclusion to his experiment with pleasure was that it's all vanity. No matter what satisfaction you get in this life, it's steam off a cup of coffee, it's striving after the wind. It it didn't bring me lasting satisfaction. Solomon is not speaking against pleasure. We're going to get to passages later on in chapter 7 and 8 and 9 where he says, if anyone is going to enjoy this planet, it ought to be a believer who can understand and contextualize the pleasures of this world as gifts of God. He's not speaking against pleasure. He's just saying that pleasure can be no more than God intended those pleasures to be. Uh, several years ago, I remember I was uh, with my wife in uh, on a missions trip in Italy, and we had an opportunity to go into this ancient city on Sicily. And as we were um, walking around, there was um, there, were, there was this massive sign over this bridge um, that to to not have any uh, to only have foot traffic. And the reason was it looked an arch, beautiful bridge. They had built a bridge beside it that they diverted a road around to go over. But the reason was that bridge was not built or intended to bear the weight of a car or a truck. It was intended to bear the weight of a horse. It's about 800 years old. That's exactly what Solomon is saying about pleasure. It will bear the weight of what God intends, but it won't bear the weight of lasting satisfaction. So far in our study of this incredible book, we've seen Solomon introduce his task. He's taken life and experimented and studied it with what it can offer. Chapter one, verse three is something of a theme. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Chapter one, verse eight is a hint of his conclusion, um, which he tells us at the end of the book that there's nothing better or higher than to fear God and keep his commandments. Then he experiments he gives us a short, short biography in chapter one. Then in chapter two, verses one to 11, is his account of the, that great experiment with pleasure. As he comes off this failure of these pursuits of pleasure, now he turns to life's ex- external possibilities for, for pleasure and turns, turns from external pleasure and turns internal to thinking. He said, I tried it all outside me, what, what pleasure could offer. Now I'm gonna go inside. I'm gonna go intellectual. I'm gonna go to the second story and, and think. What he finds is that there's something that trumps external pleasure and that trumps internal satisfaction or pleasure. I'm not much of a, a, a game guy. I, um, my wife... Loves to play board games. I try a couple of times a year to play board games. I, 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 I I'm, I'm, We have vacation next week, and I've already been told that we're going to play some board games. And I'm, uh, I'm psyching up about that. One of the reasons is she always beats me, and, it, it's, and she's not a good winner. <laughs> Which is code for I'm a bad loser. loser. Easy, 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 Tiger. So... Um, one of the games, though, that, that we like to play is Rook. Now, I don't know a lot about cards. I just know that in Rook, there's things that trump other things, right? There's, there's cards that are more important than other cards that if you play them, you, you win with those cards. Is that correct? A trump card. Solomon is going to talk about trumping right here. There is this idea of trumping that's not only popular in films and card games, but it's in one sense the essence of making sense out of life. To trump means to get the better of or to outdo. Solomon's message in these verses is simply this. Something trumps everything. Something trumps everything in life. And it's a grave reality called death. Let's just set up the, uh, the introduction here with verse 12. Solomon turns from his experiment with pleasure to bring meaning to his life and examines intellectualism, namely wisdom and folly, Verse 12 is really saying that if Solomon, uh, uh, of all people, has come up empty-handed, then what hope has anyone who comes after him in finding meaning? Think about it. No one would have ever had a greater opportunity to combine wisdom and wealth and intellectualism to understand the deeper realities of making sense out of life and pleasure than Solomon. So what I want to do tonight when we break this down is look at three grave realities of life. And by grave, I really mean the grave. We're going to be talking about death. He turns to intellectualism, to pondering wisdom and folly, the pursuits of the mind, to see if there are indeed answers there. What he finds is that death trumps all his pursuits. So in verses 12 to 17, number one, we find out that death trumps wisdom. Death will eventually trump wisdom. (coughs) Verse 13... Let's look at that again. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. It's a comparison of wisdom and folly, light and darkness. This analogy is flowing right out of his own lips that will continue through the rest of the book, this light and dark theme. His critique is not intended to be all-encompassing, only to look at how it stands up against death. Obviously, wisdom is going to beat folly in this life. But he goes deeper than that. Note that wisdom is like light and folly or foolishness is like darkness. To possess wisdom, according to chapter 10, verse 10, is to give success, preserve life and protect it, chapter seven, verse 12. It gives strength in chapter seven, verse 19. Wisdom gives joy in chapter eight, verse one. It's better than brute force and strength in chapter nine, verse 16. It's clear that Solomon is not discarding wisdom as useless, only measuring it as a realist who is going to die. This is Solomon at the end of his life. He may be measuring his life yet in weeks and months, not years and decades. His point is that wisdom is indispensable, but wisdom is limited. A wise man has the insight to avoid danger. A fool does not. He walks in darkness. Look at verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I know that one fate befalls them both. The fool walks in darkness, the the wise man in light, but no matter if you're a fool or a wise man, one fate, look at the end of the verse, still waits at the end. That fate is an interesting Hebrew word. It means literally an event. One event awaits them both. Don't make more out of this than you should. This is not talking about fatalism. Chapter three is going to assure us that God is indeed sovereign. Wisdom does not exempt us, however. It doesn't exempt you. It doesn't exempt me from the mortality of Genesis three. The wages of sin is death, even for a believer. One of the most famous lines that I I remember studying when I, when I had a, a... I took two classes on Shakespeare in a college a, from a really excellent instructor. I, I mean, I'm not the kind of guy who sits around and reads Shakespeare, but he was such a good speaker, such a good teacher, such an insightful guy that I took everything he taught. I think my favorite of all the Shakespearean plays was King Lear. And remember what King Lear says at the very end after the tragic circumstances of his life? He says, is this the promised end? Is this the promised end? Is this it? I've come to the end and this is it? I remember my dad talking to me on the phone the last week of his life. I was in California, he was in Tennessee, and I was talking to him. He was standing up. I think that might have been the last time he was standing up, and um, he was looking out the window. I was going to try to make it home that weekend. And uh, he was being just ravaged with cancer. And I remember him saying, after a long pause, Rick, I just wish I could live. I don't want this to be it. There's got to be something more than these 52 years that I've just lived. Though we might not think it fair right or pleasant. Still, the wise man has the advantage of facing death because he can see it coming. He can contemplate it. He can prepare for it. That's going to be the conclusion at the end of the whole book. Verse 15, then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, so it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. Is he just throwing out the wisdom God gave him? No, no. He's not going back on his conclusion that wisdom is better than folly. He's simply asking realistically, how much better is it in the end since both the wise and the fool die? He's being a realist. I wonder how many times you have contemplated the fact that you really are, honestly, unavoidably going to die. What have you really done in your life? This is a theme. By the way, Solomon's going to continue to cycle and circle and pound out over and over in this book. As we said, it's like that mortician who signs all of his stationery, eventually yours. It's going to happen. He's saying, look, I'm wise, but his wisdom, as wonderful as it was and better than than being a fool, it didn't save him from dying. That's his point. Verse 16, Verse 16, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. Solomon notes that not only will he die, he will be forgotten. Now he's not saying like forgotten that no one will ever remember him. He's saying he won't be the focus of people who are around him while he's alive when he's dead. We understand that. Both of my parents have died. Many friends have died. I've had relatives die. You don't forget them in terms of never thinking about them again, but you don't think of them in the same way as when they were alive. Solomon faces that reality. In other words, after you and I die, they will likely have a potluck and laugh and tell jokes. And we hope they do so that they're not mourning. We will be in a better place with a better person. That's okay. But eventually they get up in the, next, uh, the next morning or... The following week, and they, they go to work, and life just continues on. Solomon is aware of that. Proverbs ten seven says, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Sure will be remembered. The godly will be remembered for the right kinds of things, but not the wicked. Verse 17. So I hated life. Why? I mean, I I would love to give this verse in isolation to a first-year seminary student and say, come back next week and preach on this. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Literally, it was evil to me. It was unhelpful to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Don't miss that this statement is in reference to the work that Solomon had done and the frustration of seeing it all slip away in death. Again, this is, it clearly says under the sun. It's an under the sun perspective. In chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, it's his godly perspective that will come back and, in fact, just turn over for a second, lest you think that Solomon is such a, a pessimist. Look at chapter 5, verse 18 for a moment. One of the frustrating things about breaking down Ecclesiastes over multiple weeks to preach is it's, it's really one sermon. It's intended to go from the beginning to the end in one sitting. And so we have to kind of bounce around to get a full perspective. In chapter 5, verse 18, here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's labor, which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man whom God has given riches and wealth, he has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and re- to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So just a little balance there. This is not the only thing Solomon is going to say in, about life in chapter 2, verse 17. But we have to look at this in chapter 2, verse 17. What is he saying? The point Solomon is pressing here is that what you do with your intellect will not bring you meaning unless it brings you to God. In other words, what you know has, well, in your knowledge, wisdom, intellect, has little to do with your mortality. We cannot, with all of our wisdom that we can ever accumulate, avoid death. If mere intellectualism brought meaning to life, then all of our vacations would be at the university standing outside the library trying to get in to get all that wisdom just to catch a bit of tranquility there have you ever noticed that people who live high level intellectual lives very deep thinkers it's not uncommon for those deep thinkers who don't know the lord to take their own lives they just run out of answers There's a bridge at the Durham Cathedral, a bastion of learning in England that had to be closed because too many people were going up on the bridge and jumping off to end their lives. Why? Because death trumps wisdom. That's his point. I've accumulated all this wisdom, but in the end, it doesn't, it doesn't make me trump death, Death trumps wisdom. We will all die. That's his simple point. Uh, if you think it, that's bad, it gets even a little worse. Number two, death trumps wealth. Death trumps wealth. I was preparing this, and I just was thinking about all the presidential candidates, how, 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 how this message could fly in their own quiet times where they to have one. Death trumps wealth. Look at verse verse 18 and 19. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor. That's the same connection to I hated life. I hated the fact that my wisdom didn't make me uh, trump death. Death still trumps me. Now I hated the fruit of my labor, my uh, accumulation, for which I labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This is useless. This is vanity. Do you really need a lot of explanation on this? He's disillusioned that all he has amassed, all he has worked for, all of his wealth will be swallowed up by death and then given to someone, Rehoboam, who hadn't worked for it. If you read the story of Rehoboam, he squandered it immediately after Solomon's death. This would prove to be a legitimate fear for Solomon. 1 Kings 12, 13, and 14, Rehoboam plunders the temple that his father had built. He used the gold in the temple to pay off the Egyptian army. I mean, Solomon had a good reason to to think deeply about this. I'm accumulating all this wealth just to give to my kids. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have an inheritance. But I think if Solomon were here, he'd say the better investment is into the kingdom, not into giving it to someone who didn't work for it. Just surmising from what he says. You just don't know what's gonna happen with them. You just don't know what's going to happen with all of them, those, those things that you've accumulated. And I'm not saying don't have a life insurance policy. I have one. I'm not saying don't, don't have will your things to your children. I've done that. I get that. What he's saying is be careful. Be careful because when you die, you have no control over your stuff. Look at verse 20. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. He's looking at his stuff and going, really? He's watching Rehoboam. Solomon, just like David, probably would not be nominated as spiritual father of the year. Solomon was very wise when he was telling Rehoboam in Proverbs chapters one through nine, here's how to live, but he didn't hold him accountable. He turned him over to the idolatry of his own heart. He didn't shepherd him away from the foreign wives that had gotten him in trouble. Immediately after his death, Rehoboam begins this treacherous scheme of power. And immediately after his death, in the north, Jeroboam and Rehoboam get sideways and the kingdom splits. Verse 21. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to the one who has not labored with him, there's something to be said here, by the way, having I want to speak out of both sides of my mouth. you know be careful giving all of your stuff to your kids and be careful not doing that as well. there's nothing wrong with that, but there is something to be said for working for what you get i um, I remember in in college having to uh, I was on a sports scholarship my first year, and then after that i was I was on my own scholarship um, and uh, i I um, I remember one night I was working three jobs and trying to pay for school. And one night, coming home and laying in my bed, literally tears running down. I was looking at the ceiling. I remember tears running down the sides of my temple, angry at my parents who didn't have a lot of money because they weren't helping me pay for school. I remember that that was after the day of this. Uh, this is gonna be. Uh, we need the violins to strike up right now. This sounds so sad. Uh, it was after day I was falling asleep in class and this one girl says, man, you must be lazy. You fall asleep all the time. But I was working at UPS from four to eight in the morning and then working two other jobs in the afternoon and wasn't getting any sleep. And I was just mad and angry and laying there just weeping, saying, well, this is not fair that my parents haven't, haven't provided for me so that I have to pay for my own college. Can I just tell you right now, praise God, praise God that I did. I remember I actually did something in college I did not do in high school. I studied a couple times because I was paying for it. I didn't want to fail because then I would have to pay for it again. It's this amazing thing that responsibility does for you. So be careful making things. This is a little parenting 101 from Solomon. Be careful making things too easy for our kids, right? Boys, we got things to talk about tonight. My own sons, no. Actually, we do, but that's for another time. This too is vanity and a great evil. When he says evil, he's not talking about moral evil. He's just talking about a calamity. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors in the sun? Because... All his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Talking about laying in bed and wondering about your your inheritance, your stocks, your bonds, your portfolio, your investments, your your wealth, your lack of money, all that. You lay on your bed and you think about it, but it's all not going to matter when we die. Think of the stress that wealth brings. And by the way, every time we talk about wealth, I know what you do. You think of that wealthy person. According to Matthew 6, Matthew 6, All of you are wealthy. Here's the definition of wealth according to Jesus. If you have more than one thing to wear, does that qualify all of you? If you know where you're going to sleep tonight, is that you? And you know where your next meal is coming from. If you can say yes to all those three, biblically you are wealthy. Most of the world doesn't have that assurance right now. I was speaking to a missionary friend in India who was telling me just that. He says, you don't understand. We've talked about this a little bit before, but when they pray, give us this day, our daily bread, they mean it. And there are some days they don't eat because bread hasn't been supplied. Think of the stress, though, that all of our wealth brings. What to buy, what to get, how to keep up with it, how to store the things we get, how to keep others from stealing our stuff, how to make sure others appreciate our stuff, how we display it. How we maintain these, uh, these things and keep them clean and in working order and displaying condition. Ultimately, who will get this stuff when we die? Knowing that they didn't work for it. We are in a, a position this next uh, year where, where we need to readdress our, our will. We do this every couple of years. And um, it brings up a lot, of, a lot of questions. I don't have to bring out my will very often with my sons. I remember taking them to school in California, and this one morning was particularly a um, troubling morning. Uh, one of them in the back said, Dad, when, when you die, can I have your, your Ruger 20-gauge? And before I could answer, the next one said, yeah, I want your Dozier knives. And the other one said, yeah, I want your guitar. And they, they, they began itemizing my life and claiming it. And I, I, I couldn't even get a word in there. I want this. I want that. I want this. I want that i 'm going to sell it all before you yeah you know, <laughs> <laughs> again, remember this is the secular, the realist in Solomon, this viewing world, the world, and all of its. Accumulation. Remember, chapter 5, he'll come back and look at it from a godly perspective. He's just laying out brute force wisdom here. There's nothing evil about having things and enjoying the fruit of your labor. We're going to see that in the next section. But the spur comes when we try to extract happiness and meaning and significance out of what we own. And God, for a believer, has an interesting way when we start putting the stress on what we own to bring us happiness to make sure. It doesn't. What's this point here? Rich people all die. Several years ago, there was a man who was an acquaintance of mine. He wasn't a, a good friend, but I met him several times. He was one of the wealthiest men in America. And uh, I, I was able to meet him, was able to go to a, a reception they had one time where he was hosting it. I was shocked. I, I mean, the food was presented so, in such a lovely way, I didn't want to eat it. I just thought, we should just take pictures of this and celebrate it because no one would eat this. It was amazing. He uh, developed a very rare condition with a heart valve that couldn't be, have a replacement. And uh, he spent untold millions of dollars flying around the world to try to get his heart fixed. But he died. If it wasn't going to be his heart valve, it was going to be something else. Everybody dies. That's what Solomon is saying. Rich people die. No matter how much money you have, how much you can borrow, how much you can accumulate, it will have no bearing on our mortality. The bottom line is that death trumps our wisdom and death trumps our wealth. But Solomon does not leave us there. Praise God, he wants us to have some good news in the middle of these startling realities. Number three, God trumps death. Death trumps wealth, death trumps wisdom, but God trumps death. Look at verse 24. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. I was talking with Lewis about this before. The Hebrew could say um, there's no proof that eating and drinking and telling yourself that your labor is good will bring satisfaction. Look at the last phrase. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. Wow, we find out the labor is from the hand of God. We'll, We'll find this out later in the book. Labor is not bad. Work is not bad. There was work in the garden before the fall. Adam was put in the garden to tend the garden. Work is a good thing. We draw significance, meaning, and profit from it. It's not bad. But the conclusion is in verse 25. Here's a verse that you can hang your life on. It's a question that's really not a question. It's a statement. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him, without God? The answer is no one. Or better, the answer is you can have temporary enjoyment Without him, but it won't last. Who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? That ought to make us think when we have an enjoyment, when we have a pleasure, when we have a good meal, to stop and thank God for taste buds. Thank God that we live in a day in which we're not eating just manna every day. Well, the Israelites got tired of that. It was, must have been good, but after a while, they said we want something more. As I told you, my wife being sick, I, <clears throat> I went to the grocery store yesterday. and, I, I, and it's not that I, I. Some of you are talking about. It. I'm, I'm not an overwhelmingly you know lazy human who's never been to the grocery store. I did live on my own for a while, but um, it was amazing. This is the the newer High V on 95th and um, what is it Antioch? And I mean, this is the this thing's the size of, of of Costco. It's it's Home Depot for food. It's incredible. There's so much stuff. Looking at all of the varieties, I was getting some things for, for a grilling yesterday, and just, there's a lot of stuff to grill. A lot of meat, a lot of vegetables. It was amazing. There were vegetables I had never seen before. Couldn't identify and certainly didn't want to eat. <laughs> they had a whole cursed section. There was a section for mushrooms. And I was trying to tell people, I heard that, Dave, I was trying to tell people, no, this is the curse. People die from eating mushrooms. This is not a good place to be. So many varieties. So many ways to have enjoyment with and because of him. I'm not being silly about this. When you have red and green and yellow peppers have you thanked god for all three when you have ribeye, kansas city strip fillet you know, can can you thank god that we have this variety especially in a in a place of abundance in which we live we should enjoy these things because of him we get to thank him for that please stop and pause when you have your meal uh, your prayer before your meal and truly thank god for this that we're about to partake of. It's incredible. By the way, we've been out of Ecclesiastes for a few weeks, but if you've been paying attention, God has been scarcely mentioned until now. It's almost like he's getting all the secular evaluation out of the way this is how the realist looks at life, which will be corrected and trumped by the godly perspective. He's only talked about God one time before this this uh, place, and that's in chapter one, verse thirteen. Now he crashes into his despair and gives us some much needed perspective. The key that unlocks this whole section is there in verse twenty five. God, death exonerates walking in wisdom if the wisdom leads us to understand and acknowledge God. The power of the gospel exercises power over death. One of the things that is very troubling to me when I've, on to other parts of the world um, in the northern part of South Africa um, we're very insulated from death we, we're kind of, we've kind of sterilized it and I'm, I'm very thankful for this at one level when, when our loved ones die it's in a hospital or in hospice someone comes and takes care of that that's not the way most of the world buries their dead death is in their face all the time they, they dig the grave. They handle the, the body. The whole Ebola problem was handling with the, the outbreak was because they were handling dead bodies that were infected. There are no undertakers in underdeveloped countries. People are always looking at death. I think that insulates us from thinking much and thinking deeply about our death. There's some blessings to that. I'm certainly thankful of the country that we live in and those, those um, privileges that we have that we don't have to do all of that. And yet, not doing that, I think, insulates us from thinking deeply about the fact that we are going to die. That one day our, one day our bodies will stiffen from lack of life and be covered and put in a grave. You say, well, that's kind of a bummer to think about. Look at verse 26. For to a person who is good in his sight, he's given wisdom and knowledge, ah, finally, and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may Give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the blessing of being a godly person, a believer. We have wisdom and knowledge and joy. Same context is what he's been taking, uh, telling us that he hates life. No, no. That's from a secular perspective. The believer has Joy. And we even profit, the last part of that verse says we profit from an unbeliever's labor sometimes. And remember, it's vanity and striving after the wind. All he's saying when he says that is it doesn't last. You can't catch the wind. Just for a moment, turn over to 1 Peter chapter three. All throughout the study of Ecclesiastes, we're gonna keep bouncing over to the New Testament because without the gospel, this is going to have some very very downer effects on us. I think Solomon would have us look at Peter's admonition in 1 Peter chapter 3. I think this is Peter's John 3:16. 1 Peter 3:18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. God trumps death, and he trumps it in the gospel through Christ. Solomon longed to see this day. So, what are you accumulating in your life? What do you want? What do you want to do? What do you want to get or experience? Now, we're going to get to chapter three, which is going to tell us there's a time for everything. There's a time to enjoy a ribeye or a Krispy Kreme or a fresh fruit smoothie. There's time for all of that. However, those pleasures don't last Remember where we started they 're juicy fruit. They taste good for a few minutes, and then it gets really nasty what 's the ladder of your life leaning against? <clears throat> Just uh, last week, I was uh, reading through a hymnal because I was looking for something, and I found uh, one of my favorite hymns and I want to encourage you to take I hope you own a hymnal don't don 't take the one under the <laughs> the seed, but it's worth getting on Amazon and buying a hymn, although not that much. You can find a used one for a dollar or less sometimes. Take the hymn sometime and just read them. Just read them as a poem. Read them as, a, as, as pedagogy, as teaching, as instruction. <clears throat> listen to this line from a very familiar hymn that you know very well, but listen to it now in the shadow and context of what Solomon just taught us. I love thee in life, I will love thee in what? Death. And praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say, listen to this, when the death dew lies cold on my brow. Is there anything more graphic than that? When the death dew is on my corpse and I'm buried. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, it's when? Now. You know why that hymn can say that? Because it's experienced what Solomon says. I understand wealth. I understand power. I understand wisdom. But I understand death and that God trumps death. And the best thing for me to do is to live wisely knowing that this world is not it. And In chapter 3. In our next study, Solomon's gonna say, there's a time for everything, but he tells us what to seek in the best of our times. Hope you know Christ if you don't. This is such a, a grave reality for all of us. We will all end up in the grave. It's good news to know that so that you can prepare for it. And I hope you understand and know the gospel that Christ died in our place for us. Just what Peter said, that he would bring us to God and that you've committed your life to him. If you have any questions about that, please don't leave without me being able to to chat with you.